You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everybody. Peter Maravellis here. Tonight on City Lights Live, we take a look at how California's counterculture of the 60s through the 80s was shaped in a very significant way by West Coast artists. City Lights and Princeton University Press celebrate the publication of The Artist in the Counterculture, Bruce Conner to Mike Kelly and Other Tales from the Edge. It's authored by Thomas Crow and published by Princeton University Press. Before we begin, I would like to take this moment to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to offer our respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. So we're delighted to have with us tonight Thomas Crow in conversation with Carrie Lambert Beatty. Thomas Crow is an art historian and art critic who is best known for his influential writing on the role of art in modern society and culture. He is a Rosalie Solo Professor of Modern Art at the Institute of Fine Arts at NYU. His many books include The Long March of Pop, Art, Music, and Design, 1930-1995, and The Hidden Mod in Modern Art, London, 1957-1969. Joining him in conversation will be Carrie Lambert Beatty. She is a historian, art historian with a focus on contemporary art and interests in spectatorship, art and knowledge and performance. She is the author of the book, Being Watched, Yvonne Rainier and the 1960s and has written many celebrated essays. She is the co-editor of October Magazine and holds a joint appointment in History of Art and Architecture and the Department of Art, Film and Visual Studies at Harvard University. Really a great honor to have you both with us. Please join us now in giving a warm welcome to Thomas Crow and Carrie Lambert Beatty. Welcome to City Lights. Yes, thank you, Peter. Thanks so much. <laughs> Couldn't be more happy to be here. I am also thrilled and honored to be here with Tom on this wonderful occasion of the uh, public launch of an amazing book project. Um, for which thank you. Yeah, beautiful in so many ways. Um, Tom, can I ask you to start um, in a sort of first person mode and tell us how you, um, how this book came to be? What, um, what's the story of Tom Crow the and the, the counterculture in the sixties, exactly. Well, there are sort of two um, registers to that. I, it's occurred to me that the, the second half of the book, which is mostly centered in Southern California, which is where I'm from, grew up, was educated, and introduced to serious art. Mm -hmm. And a number of those serious artists, some still with us, some no longer, are in the book and they are people in my way as kind of naive student way that I was then that I met some of them I knew pretty well observed what was going on and it was at that juncture really I had thought my career would be in uh sort of social sciences direction or something and it just occurred to me that this world of art was a whole lot more interesting and kind of casting around a bit doing a bit of practice I was kind of settled on doing art history and I wouldn't be here doing this now I think if it wasn't for that group of artists Bastian Otter Chris mm -hmm. Burton, Al Rupersberg, Alexis Smith, the, and uh, I'm grateful to them for actually giving me so much of the book to write. The second part of the answer is much more recent. I just got asked to do a talk, as one does, and it was about sort of local or regional avant-garde scenes. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I don't know about this comprehensively, but it occurred to me that Bruce Connor is kind of distinguished by having been part of a number of avant-garde scenes, not just San Francisco, but he had started in New York really before that when he was still a student, but somebody who really kind of got on and got connected there. He ended up in Cambridge and Boston 
for a considerable period in his life where he made art, had exhibitions, uh, made his film report about the Kennedy assassination. Uh, and he also had a, a very considerable part to play in the Los Angeles avant-garde. Yeah. He spent uh, had a kind of double life after 1964, where he would spend a lot of time in Los Angeles. Wallace Berman, had, who was his friend in San Francisco, had moved back there. Uh, but Dennis Hopper was kind of his key connection, such that they became sort of doppelgangers, uh, curiously enough, considering how different their temperaments were. Uh, and so then I made up a talk about this. Uh, COVID arrived about a month later. Um, and I thought, well, there isn't anybody who's put together Connor's life in this way. So I'll just start doing it. And, you know, a couple of hundred pages later, that was, <laughs> that was the platform for the book. So those, those are the two answers to that question. First of all, I find it astounding that you wrote this in the time since COVID hit, because it is just amazingly researched. There are so many documents and um, sort of behind the scene bits that you uncover or at least put together um, for the first time I've seen them. Yeah, I guess necessity is the mother of invention here. You had to be able to use published material that you could order. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously finding things online and so on that were scanned. Um, but I... I guess I had to, you know, really think about it and try to find things. I mean, I think we were maybe going to leave the reading to something a little later, but it brings up a, an anecdote. I had acquired a, an interesting book of, of individual sort of essays, testimony about the counterculture in the West, and more, you know, the Mountain West, more in New Mexico, places like that, different people talking about their experiences from the 60s right through the commune movement in the next decade and so on. But I found some really interesting <laughs> remarks by a, a woman named Yvonne Bond. Maybe somebody here knows her or knew her uh, uh, talking about she was a student at Berkeley, but decided she just wanted to go off to Mexico City on a lark and turned up at the apartment that the Connors, that, that Bruce and Jean Connor were occupying then, as they had their own kind of uh, on-the-road sojourn in Mexico City. And I'll just read a bit, or the bit in the book that talks about that. That'd be great. I say further insight into the Connors' Mexican life comes via the recollections of uh, a young free spirit from the Bay Area named Yvonne Bond. I realize I overuse the word free spirit. It's <laughs> lots of instances of it in the book. Anyway, having taken leave from her studies at Berkeley, she arrived in Mexico City in 1962 and secured a place sleeping on the floor of the Connor apartment where she remained for the next six months. And this is what she said. This was an incredible scene. I was 22. I barely knew them. I'd seen them at just a few parties, right? I knock on their door in Mexico City and say, hi, do you think I could stay here for a while? Without saying a word, Bruce grabs a roll of heavy plastic stuff like you put on your windows. He cuts off a swath of it, crunches it all into a big mass, gets a staple gun and throws this plastic down and staples it into the wood floor, throws a blanket on it, puts a pillow on it and says, there you go. And it's, it's an instance of his penchant for almost wordless pantomime communication, just finding some decisive action that conveys what he wants to say about, a, you know, a given encounter. And I go on, uh, 
Bond also offers a close-up account of one way that, that Timothy Leary came to resume his mushroom affinity in the Connors company. It was one of those magical moments, she relates. There's a knock on the door and there's a very diminutive Mazatec Indian man with a hand-woven bag over his shoulder, cappuccino clothing, who very softly and humbly says in Spanish, I hear there are some people here who would like to have a mushroom ceremony. And this was our first mushroom ceremony with Don Izaro Nava. How he got our address, I'll never know, she marvels, though uh, Leary's presence in Mexico at that very moment, and he'd already looked up the Connors, might provide something of an answer. And uh, uh, after that long night session with Don Izaro, she and some friends then made the pilgrimage to his home in Huatla de Jimenez in the Mazateca of Oaxaca. Um, but other people were turning up similarly, including the great Los Angeles curator, Walter Hopps, uh, owner of the Ferris Gallery where Connor was getting ready to have a show. Hops had a long family history in Mexico. He'd lived there as a child. And at that time, everybody, despite the fact that he was about 6'2", everybody called him Chico, Chico Hops. Um, his grandfather, having come to Mexico in 1880 to get in on the mineral boom, and he still had relatives with land in the area. So he and Connor went down there, slept in a stone structure on the site, but Hops's rest was fitful, as he attests to his friend's continued partaking of psilocybin. Quote, it wasn't always easy to get a normal night's sleep with Bruce around. Stoned, he had visions and thought strange things were going on in the night, winged beings coming after him, and so on. Um... And when an interviewer later asked him, what did you do in Mexico? Connor's reply begins, a lot of drugs and pyramids, which is the title of that chapter. <laughs> so excellent. those two things, just by, in, in terms of research, it was just mm -hmm. finding Yvonne Bond's testimony in a book where I wasn't even expecting to find anything about Connor. Oh. And the, um, the, the hops, uh, recollections were in Bomb magazine, which are which are online. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you know, so it was kind of like that—a chain of things just going one from the other, and sometimes just by you know lucky serendipity. That's great. Um, I thought I'd mention that the book does have a kind of interesting structure in that the first part is this extended biography. Um, I mean the. Um, of the Connors, but Bruce mm -hmm. in particular, um, who I can see why, how could you not tell all these stories for one thing, um, but with each of them, uh, a figure who some of us know, you know, from um, one piece in an art exhibition, from show at MoMA, from, uh, or some of us know from film history, right, um, from mm -hmm. watching his early found footage films, um, suddenly is like the linchpin between all kinds of figures of the 60s that um, it's it's a whole new understanding of a real world that people were part of and that that art comes out of. Yeah, it was the connective tissue that I was interested in. And it's yeah. a good word for Connor because so many of his assemblages, you know, are are just sort of bound together with nylon stockings stretched and and connecting things like like frayed tendons and and so on. Um, but there's been a lot of good scholarship and writing yeah. on Bonner, and I, uh, you know, really uh, used and relied on what uh, people like. There's a, the, the book about the rat bastards mm -hmm. uh, by Anastasia Alkman. Uh, 
they're, you know, they're a former student of, of mine, Rachel Fetterman wrote an excellent lengthy essay in the, in the MoMA, the Besset MoMA first, and then uh -huh. the New York MoMA catalog. Um, you know, there are uh, uh, Joanna Goss, for example, on the films is, is, is really very insightful and wrote a whole dissertation on them. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I kind of missed, which I think you imply in your question, that people are sort of taking aspects of him, uh, uh, me different media, different moments or periods in his work, and the the threads get broken. And I, you know, not in a way having access to his full body of primary research as I would have liked. I thought at least I could see these connections. And I put the word tales in the title as a deliberate provocation because it's not a very respectable way to describe your work in my field. <laughs> my field. Uh, but I wanted it to be that. I wanted yeah. the finding of the, of the continuity and the connections, which in some instances are just part of his personality, like the nonverbal communication, which extends to his desire to dance at every opportunity, even though his actual dancing doesn't seem to have been all that impressive. <laughs> you uh, also mentioned that there are no photographs of him after a certain point. Um, well, there, yeah, there are, it's intermittent. He allowed some to be taken right around 1960. Then there's a gap until 64, but then he lets Dennis Hopper take pictures of him when he's in LA but there's a sense that when he's in LA he's kind of a different person I get that very strongly see that's another this is a contrast rather than a continuity but a connection that kind of gets lost uh, mm -hmm. if you're only looking at facets and aspects and so on uh, you know the the nonverbal communication in general the number of people who complain that they'd like to hear him talk say something about something and all he would do is play his harmonica which he always That's had in his so this is getting you know very much around bruce connor who is is a famously unusual person yes. but and as you observed because i decided i was going to try to make this as fully connected as i could without going overboard and doing a full dress biography so it comes out to about 90 pages in the book and I just wanted to leave it like that but then you know uh, extend the themes into talking about a much larger number of artists first of all in activism what follows the the Connor chapters is a chapter two chapters on on political activism which expresses my belief that the old the, uh, con uh, disconnection, the disconnection between political activism and, you know, hippie self-absorption, drug-taking mm -hmm. meditation, and so on, which was observed at the time, you know, and anathemized by some uh, in anti-hippie diatribes. But I think just having observed a bit of it in life, uh, and looking back, yes, there were some hardcore activists who excoriated all the hippies and Warren Hinkle and Am Ramparts wrote his famous uh, kind of uh, Jeremiah about the, the hate and so on. Um, uh, but I think in general, the two things drive together as a, as a general attitude of rebellion, which would have an outward social dimension and an inner dimension, as so many of these young adherents to the counterculture, as we would see them now, um, we're trying to get out from under, you know, a, a stultifying, you know, set of norms that they didn't want to mature into. And I think one of the best definitions of the counterculture is just liberation, okay. which in the 60s suddenly became a possibility for a much larger mass of people than ever had enjoyed it before. The kind the free of spirits of the avant-garde, including poverty, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. became something that lots of people could uh, could join and 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 act out themselves.
right, the original bohemian, right? The idea that, um, yeah, that you're sort of crafting your life in mm -hmm. this artistic space that doesn't um, answer to the same demands as the rest of the world. Um, on the other hand, there are some really interesting um, sort of institutional histories mixed in here. Um, and I was thinking, I'm thinking about the chapter about Pomona College, mm -hmm. um, or part of a chapter, um, which I had no idea what an interesting story it was. I was hoping you could recount that a little bit. Um, yes, and this will certainly be from the autobiographical side, as it's where I went to school. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, just sort of at the end of my tenure there, and it was a very conventional little college. Mm -hmm. um, you know, trying to be a sort of outpost of the prep, 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 preppy New England in Southern California. But that was starting to loosen up. And the little college gallery appointed an extraordinary young woman, Helene Weiner, to be the director. And she followed on the heels of another extraordinary person, a protege of Walter Hobbes's named um, Hal Glicksman, who was very connected with artists in LA. He had been a preparator at Pasadena and got the idea that he wanted to build gallery scaled single installations for individual artists, including what's come to be a famous intervention by the young Michael Asher, for one. Yeah. Um, he, Walter Hopps lured Hal back to Washington where he'd taken a job. So Helene applied for the job, got it. She had been working at the Whitechapel Gallery. She, so she's a Californian, but she had been working at the Whitechapel Gallery in London where there was a lot of sort of international conceptual process art being, being shown and uh, she, when she got to Claremont, she started looking around and said, Bastian Otter lives in Claremont, <laughs> for example, <laughs> um, uh, who's maybe not known to people so well who are not really in the visual arts, very charismatic young Dutch expatriate who did a series of very influential performance-based works. And one went so far as to entail his sailing a 12-foot boat across the Atlantic that he almost made it, but then became in a way a martyr to that cause. But I had a chance to meet him before all that transpired in 1975. And um, Aline was showing uh, William Wegman, uh, Jack Goldstein, of uh, the aforementioned Rupersburg and uh, uh, Hiroko Saka, Chris Burden did, did a, a very influential set of performances there that ended up getting Helene fired. So you know, for those of you, again, who are kind of into the art history of this period, the rest is history. She went to New York. <laughs> became the director of artist space, organized the pictures exhibition, left there to form her own gallery with a partner, Metro Pictures, which was one of the most successful Chelsea galleries until it just Ever. closed very, very recently. So that all started, started at Pomona. Uh, and there's more I could add, but I would be rambling on for <laughs> you know, the next 20 minutes. But just seeing that, that goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, which might not have been mm -hmm. so clear, is being exposed to that just, you know, just left me kind of wide-eyed and, and, you know, wanting to be around that, you mm -hmm. know, as opposed to, um, you know, rather stuffy academic disciplines. I went to UCLA for my graduate work in art history, which luckily was not a stuffy place. It was maybe one of the only places where you could study at that point that wasn't stuffy and stultifying and utterly hostile to the kinds of things that had made me interested in art in the first place. So I got to do that and then kind of make my way <laughs> through that uh, old stultifying landscape of, 
but that's a whole other story. Well, that was another wonderful story. And um, yeah, I've seen some pictures from those days at UCLA, which is an amazing confluence of um, mm -hmm. now very famous art historians who were all there, I think, to make contact with T.J. Clark, who was really revolutionizing. Well, not there before he did. Uh, no. Fact. Oh, it, it was okay. He followed you. The um, the uh, and and he comes into the book, uh, uh, an African art specialist named Arnold Rubin, who sadly died prematurely, um, who had done field work in northern Nigeria, really involved not so much with beautiful African art objects, but with um, with ritual and, and with the, the yearly calendar of rituals that he made films of when he was there and we were all exposed to these, but not just us, not just us students, you know, uh, Betty Saar would come to the mm -hmm. seminars to, to participate and, and hear Arnold and see the films and so on. Uh, so it was a connection with this emerging African-American avant-garde in Los Angeles, which comes into the book towards the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that again, it was something that I just saw up close by the happenstance of my particular educational uh, circumstances, but incredibly inspiring. And Karl Berkmeister, the formidable Marxist medievalist, uh, was also on the faculty. And we, uh, we learned oh. <laughs> from <laughs> Karl. And it was on top of that. And with Car Carol Duncan, who's a, uh -huh. another young uh, female uh, critical feminist art historian came to teach for a couple of terms we all took her classes and she's probably responsible for tim clark coming because oh. she was on the search committee and said yes i've heard of him you know so <laughs> the way the, the the chance ways that these things you know sort of transpire yeah, that it does kind of echo some of the things that happen um, uh, in the book as these characters interconnect in all kinds of ways. I mean, back to Connor, I was thinking there's the whole incident, the whole moment with Leary. Then he's basically like starts the hate as we know it, right? Now he's involved in the in the sound and light shows. Um, at some point, there he's corresponding with John Lennon, who's got his son's drawing on the back of the of yeah. the letter that he sends, right? Yeah, he was the Robert Fraser, his his dealer in London, the big pop art dealer in London, and friend of the Beatles. He was the guy who organized the Sgt. Pepper cover. That's why Wally Berman is on the cover of, of Sgt. Pepper, amongst all those other faces. Uh, uh, had a very successful Connor show and uh, an alternative reading I'd had in mind was kind of talking about it and how he was showing report, the, the Kennedy assassination film, and he'd put blood onto the celluloid that was going through the projector and the blood was drying and flaking off and jamming up the thing. And they would, so, you know, these, moments where Connor said they made me feel I thought they were going to be hip I put on Ray Charles at the party and nobody would dance they thought I must seem like a visiting aborigine <laughs> probably not the most delicate way into our way of thinking of putting it but he no, uh, no, but he just felt that that you know swinging London London of the counterculture where he would have imagined himself entirely at home mm -hmm. the class system was still so you know so present that he just didn't make any sense he didn't compute but he ended up with a really warm relationship with both Fraser and ultimately at a distance with John Lennon and he used the the track tomorrow never knows from revolver as the uh, first definitive soundtrack of Looking for Mushrooms um, with Lennon's full enthusiastic uh, participation. And all the Beatles and Frasers themselves wanted copies of the film. So he had to make prints and send them to them. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought another um, 
our historical figure who sort of gets positioned in new ways here is Chris Burden. I was wondering if you could talk about how, I know you've obviously known his work and he's been an important um, figure for you for a long time, but in this book, he yeah, has a particular I mean, role. We met in our freshman dormitory at Pomona, <laughs> orientation week. Wow. Uh, and, you know, we stayed in touch, you know, really throughout our lives. Uh, uh, and, uh, well, there's lots of, you know, again, anecdotes and stories, but I might be giving the idea that the book is composed of these things, that it's something Anthony Hayden Guest would write or <laughs> something like that. But it, to my way of thinking, to make the connections, to see the way that sort of meanings and aspirations and motives flow and transfer from, from one person to another, one place to another, you have to actually describe the way, the way that it happened. And in that, of course, is a sense of, well, you know, I mean, you can reduce it down to a kind of banal pronouncement that art is made by human beings. And if we're human interested- Human beings are social uh, animals, right? Even though still in this field, the idea of, of doing biography, Last night, the thing at Columbia, I heard people saying, you know, biographical criticism with a slight, you know, distaste for it. And I was ready to say, well, that's all I do. Because you want a sense of what life experience, what response to that, what change and growth in human beings, history being always about change, that is its subject. And the people who are doing the changing are the human beings. If you're looking at the sort of micro level of individual artists, and I think it's it's just necessary to the integrity of the of your analysis, what you're trying to say, what you're trying to understand about it, that you give them that you give them that that um, leeway. Right. And that's the, um, I also, I mean, when I was in graduate school, the worst thing you could do is biography, you know, um, that was just related to a whole idea about what a past art history was like. Um, although I remember Sally Stein taught for a year, um, at Stanford when I was there and was rethinking this in really fascinating ways. Um, and I think it was there that I sort of realized, although I, it took me a while to come back to it, that, it's the social history of art, right? We, that term it usually means thinking about big class structures and major historical changes, the social in that sense. But the small scale social is, all, is, is just the matrix, right? That connects these figures and their work to that bigger picture. It's what people share and also very surprising kinds of reappearances of certain figures like the, the great musician and band leader Sun Ra. Yeah. Here's in the book under a couple of different auspices. Yeah. He was, uh, he was, uh, uh, he had moved to California for a while. He was even teaching at Berkeley and performing mm -hmm. regularly in Los Angeles. And uh, Singh and Ngudi would talk about how they just anticipated Sun Ra coming to town. And they all loved it, the, her group at Studio Z. Um, but not so long before that, this was the end of the 70s, not so long before that, in the first part of the 70s, Sun Ra was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, his manager, John Sinclair, was the big empresario of the hip scene in Ann Arbor. And uh, it was housing Sun Ra and the whole solar orchestra. And one young student at the University of Michigan saw a Sun Ra performance and never got over it. And that was Mike Kelly. And it comes in really at the, almost at the very end of his, his, his shortened career in life. 
that Sun Ra was still, you know, a, a model in some way that he was trying to capture uh, mm -hmm. in terms of, of, of uh, you know, not entirely static, but but fixed works of art with with a video dimension. And Sun Ra in was in a way the unselfconscious continuer, continuator or heir, even though he was older, to the to the earlier countercultural emphasis on ritual, on display, on mm -hmm. panoply of dress and expression and and not being at all afraid to be outlandish, to be completely unconventional. Sun Ra being really the original Afrofuturist. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but, you know, while everybody else was saying the, the, the counterculture is over, Sun Ra just kept going and it was continuous with what he'd done then. Uh, which is an, another point I tried to make because it's often said that the counterculture really didn't have a black dimension. Mm. And um, it might not have been front and center, but it was there and it was very important. And especially in Detroit and Ann Arbor. And, and Mike took that away with him. Yeah, that really situated him um, in a whole new way, right? To that, the Michigan connection. Um, uh, indeed, what that, see, the, the counterculture had kind of, kind of migrated to South Eastern Michigan, settled there for a crucial time where you hmm. wouldn't be idolizing Dylan so much as you'd be idolizing John Coltrane. Mm -hmm. That was the mm -hmm. ethos there. And, and that was as worthy and, and, and fully as important a countercultural expression as occurred anywhere. That's such an amazing piece of this book. Um, I think we should open to some of the questions that we've gotten from in the chat. I haven't seen them yet, but Peter was gonna come back and um, sort of raise some of them for us. Um, maybe just before he does that, you could say a little bit about um, yeah, sort of closing the book with Kelly and why the title is Bruce Connor to Mike Kelly um, and other tales from the edge and what that kind of means that that's um, where you decided to stop this book. Well, I, you know, I suppose by by conventional standards, I'd ex extended it much further than most people would be inclined to do. To say that, all oh, right, the early 70s, young Mike Kelly is yeah. a long-haired hippie in Ann Arbor, and he's uh, surrounded by amazing music. He's seeing uh, Sun Ra. He's also seeing the young Iggy Pop and the Stooges, who were, in a way, the other pole of his musical sensibility. And, but, and he was so deeply you know, imbued and self-conscious about his connection to the counterculture, you might even call the historic counterculture, that he felt he only got at the, at the, in the sort of last flare up, but thought it should never rest. And it was a perpetual sort of grievance for him, which I probably share, that even though the 60s in our history, minimalism, conceptual art, color field painting, and so on is a, is a crucial decade, it's talked about all the time, taught, and so on. But the idea that the, you know, the culture of where creative, unconventional, younger people in that period was the counterculture, was, mm -hmm. was you know, the, the, the whole landscape of self-exploration, of mind expansion of, uh, uh, of, of experimentation with living and so on. But you could read 99%, if not more, of the studies of the period and never realize that that was going on. And I quote Mike at the in, in my introduction, and probably one more time because the quote is so good, to say that this reduction of the 60s to a series of essentially formal experiments is was done under 
you know, the later retrenchment, the conservative time, uh, you know, of the 80s when all of this had been put under a cloud. And he was going to fight that uh, in his way, you know, right the way uh -huh. through. And I think, you know, I don't want to presume, you know, to dedicate this to Mike or see this as somehow a, uh, an homage to him. But I mean, there is that in me. And and um, I hope just what I say about him communicates that. I think it does. Um, Peter, would you like to um, bring us yeah, some questions? Yeah, we're still waiting on, on, on questions. Oh, okay. Um, so, People. You know, Give them a couple of he minutes. Does. You know, it takes a, okay. a while for yeah. But I'll keep an eye out. Can I can I um, ask another one then of my own, which is Please, yes. um, I was so struck in this book by the role of music. It's um, just every other page we're hearing somebody, we're hearing about somebody, seeing someone, hearing someone, um, and and how important that was. And that is definitely not usual for art history. So could you talk about that aspect of this book, Tom? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it was, wasn't something I, I planned, you know, or thought that this would be a, a distinctive feature of the account uh, willfully. It's, it's just so much there. Yeah. And it was, you know, there's a lot of this book, I have to say, which is, just kind of, you know, this, it goes to its sort of COVID gestation. It's just based on stuff I know, you know <laughs> stuff that I was able to observe and able to put together at the time, just by being this kind of kid hanging around. And uh, I wanted to bring that to, to, to bear, you know, corroborating it with, written sources and so on as as much as I can and, and most of it is corroborated with some something I can cite uh -huh. something. but Absolutely. the saying it in the first place really just came from experiential knowledge and you know I can remember there was one period I saw quite a lot of Chris Burden and I remember mostly we just talked about music he was a big fan of Leon Russell when 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 Russell sort of first emerged, you know, and, and did Roll Away the Stone and Song for You and those kinds of things. Um, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, he named at least one work after the songs by the Velvet Underground, which was, a, you know, something that we, we just talked about stuff like that. And yeah. uh, it was as if those exchanges were the art exchange. You were talking about art, but you weren't talking directly about it. And oh, I, Al Rupersberg's done pieces that are based on, made out of records and so on. Just so much of it, one of the most wonderful photo text pieces that Bassianotter did is, a, is, a, is an array of nocturnal photographs called One Night in Los Angeles. And it's all pictures of him in a sort of shadowy, noir kind of LA, all these different settings. Uh, uh, but underneath each one of the images, he's written a phrase from the old Coasters song, Searchin', Searchin' Every Which Way. And in, in a beautiful hand, uh, but with, you know, this Lieber installer pop comic record about being like a Northwest Mountie and I'm looking for you everywhere, uh, setting this sort of pop musical thing without hearing the music, you don't need to. It was, he just understood how it would lift, you know, these images, which were pretty good anyway. So, yeah, it just runs through. Connor, in particular, was very close friends with a couple of great musicians. Uh, Paul Butterfield. I mean, I'm not even talking about the people he would have known in San Francisco, like, like the dead and so on. But, you know, in his travels, he became very close to Paul Butterfield, who was from Chicago. Great white harmonica player, band leader. 
um, they were even going to do a film together called The Bruce Connors Story, <laughs> which unfortunately never happened. But then when he got to Boston, he became great friends with the members of the Queskin Jug Band, which were they were really sort of leaders of the what the folk revival had turned into. Hugely popular. They played the Fillmore and the Avalon in San Francisco all the time. Uh, and uh, Jeff Moldauer in particular, who's a sort of high tenor and uh, multi-instrumentalist in the group, uh, very close to Bruce. I, I know Jeff. So I called him, you know, thinking that he just might have some memories from that period. And he said, well, yeah, I do, but I'm, I'm in touch with Bruce and Gene all the time or was, you know, when yeah. Bruce was still alive. And he had some great stories about them too. Uh, so, you know, there was just no escaping it. You know, it was, it, 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 all these things that are in it, some of them that seem kind of granularly particular to people and so on, were are all connected to something else that, to my mind, anyway, they're not, just stuck there as a little nugget, but they're necessary because they're in between two other things that need to be connected with each other. It's really masterfully done that way um, because it reads so beautifully, um, but there's so much happening inside it to make each chunk work. Um, and it's interesting because from this conversation- Music though, I, I oh, have, I yeah, see please. Peter popping up, but I can't not mention the late seventies when Connor comes back out of sort of temporary hibernation to become the great punk rock photographer of San Francisco. And the guy who sort of encourages him in this was V Vale, who his day job was as a clerk at City Lights. And uh, he ran a magazine kind of out of City Lights called Search and Destroy. And he got Connor to be his staff photographer uh, from mostly at the Mabue Gardens, which was Peter was telling me just down the street. And that's a whole other great phase of music. Well, we have we have some questions, but I, I wanted to add a little something to that. You know, uh, Mindy Bagden, who um, was a filmmaker who produced uh, one of the first punk rock films called Louder, Faster, Shorter. Oh. Bruce Connor actually helped to make that film at Mabuhay Gardens. And there are these amazing connections between like the jazz scene of the 50s in Los Angeles, which Mindy kind of came from that milieu oh, yeah. and, and already kind of had, you know, rubbed elbows with a lot of, you know, Connor's friends and Wallace Berman's friends. And, and so you see this continuum that goes from like jazz to, you know, counterculture of the sixties to the punk thing, to burning man, the zine explosion. It's like the threads are still here now. I mean, with urban exploration and, you know, and some of the kind of offshoots that came out of suicide club and burning man. Um, so yeah, it's wonderful to hear this. Yeah. Um, and I was also able, I should put in a, a, a plug for, Connor's much younger counterpart in Los Angeles, Jenny Lenz, yeah. who, who produced an amazing record of, of, of punk performance and clubs like The Mask. Uh, and so I've got a nice balance, age, gender, North <laughs> South, you know, in, in the book between them, which I'm kind of proud of. Yeah. So we're getting some questions now. Um, Pad asks... How did the spirit of Dada and the 1963 Marcel Duchamp retrospective in Pasadena underpin the rebellious nature of California artists? Well, I think it, it the rebellious nature of California artists made the show possible to begin with. That it was the first Duchamp retrospective. And Walter Hops, who had cut his teeth in the jazz scene, as Peter was implying, um, just, you know, didn't care if nobody else had done it. He was going to do it in, in the old Pasadena Museum, the sort of chinoiserie building that where he was operating at that point. And uh, he, you know, knew that Duchamp had, you know, settled in New York for the most part, had a 
you know, a, a local face-to-face -face following without having really emerged into public view. And Walter had the idea that this was the moment, this was the time. And there are, of course, famous photos from the opening where you have Andy Warhol, Billy Al Bingston, Irving Blum, uh, all, you know, embracing because it's Ed Ruscha, the, you know, it was a gathering of the sort of local uh, cognoscenti <laughs> of, of, of art and the spirit in a way that, that, that Hobbes, as he so often did, was able to catalyze. And it certainly, because it, everyone knew it was such an historical event and the, 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 the burst of, of, I think, confidence that it gave to everybody who was either there or was aware of it or heard of it, that LA art, that this was the, the, the mission of LA art. And it was in a way superior to what New York had by comparison. Speaking of, of LA art, Nancy asks, I remember Mike Kelly being very involved with Beyond Baroque and the poetry community in Los Angeles. Could you expand on the poet and artist connection? Uh, well, yes, uh, he was very much involved with Beyond Baroque, especially there was one famous uh, uh, event there when Beyond Baroque hosted a visual artist, Hermann Nietzsche, one of the the Viennese actionists who was going to do a sort of provocative performance. And, and Kelly was recruited to be the kind of second in command, you know, to make sure that everything went okay and do what Nietzsche required. Uh, but, you know, poets don't get enough credit from art historians. I think critics and enthusiasts for poetry probably don't give the visual arts quite enough credit either. It's probably a bit symmetrical, but it's one of the things that I've tried to encourage in my teaching and my students. I've had one student discover that so many key artists, uh, not California ones for the most part, but so many key artists from the late 50s and, and, and early 60s, including, say, Carl Andre, Dan Flavin, thought of themselves as poets. And poetry is what they did. Hollis Frampton was part of that little circle. And Frank Stella, as one of their friends, was a little bit of the outlier because he was he was frankly and only a visual artist rather than a poet. And most of the early work that Andre did, he himself defined as poetic. And there was a general enthusiasm, which of course Bruce Connor shared in a bit, and I didn't really find a way to unpack this, but an enthusiasm for Ezra Pound, which was all over. Uh, you know, Connor was seen sporting an Ez for Prez button, uh, which was one of the tokens, you know, of this kind of cult. And, and you know, given Pound's history and war, um, it's, it's still something which remains to be investigated. Uh, Jen Bonacore, who's a student in question, finished her PhD on this, made fabulous discoveries uh, about the, 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 you know, the origins of a lot of 60s process art of the kind that is now so celebrated. Mm -hmm. I was talking about it just a, a bit ago. Um, started out in poetry. Michael asks, speaking of mushrooms and music, did Cage have a deep impact upon the West Coast scene? Uh, you know, I haven't found a lot of Cajun, you know, imprints on West Coast art, but I wouldn't diminish it because Cage was so well known. He had come from the West Coast, so there was a certain pride in him. There was always a rumor that he had gone to Pomona for a year which I've never, uh, well, maybe I knew at one point, I can't remember whether it was true or not, 
rather like the rumor that Frank Zappa had gone to Pomona for a year, which was kind of parallel. Uh, uh, and yeah, Cage's mushrooms, though, I think are very much in the moist and humid climate of the Hudson River Valley. <laughs> Not so much where we, uh, you know, where we find ourselves on the West Coast. And uh, Alberta asks, didn't Bruce do light shows in the 60s? Yeah, Carrie mentioned that. Please tell us more, though. I was hoping you'd pick that up. Yes, he, um, he, uh, there was a, you know, once the Avalon and the Fillmore got going in 1966 with Chet Helms and Bill Graham, and they, and, and the light shows were, not an add-on, you know, to the music. They were conceived as much more integral to the event, and and the the, the little companies that did the light shows always got a good billing on the posters, uh, headlights, uh, Joshua light show. Uh, but the one that Bruce Connor got involved with, it's been started by a, another filmmaker, another young filmmaker named Ben Van Meter, called the. American Ibis Alchemical Company. And they had a pretty regular gig at the Avalon. And on the, on the back of the dust cover, I think that's pretty visible. Uh -huh. This is a two inch by two inch celluloid slide that Connor hand painted to create this pattern. And then you would drop that, you know, into regular 35 mil projector, and you could spread it across the, the whole side of the auditorium. And he had, I think, several dozen of these that he'd hand painted, uh, a technique which he would, I think, certainly have recollected and associated with the films of Harry Smith, uh, who hand painted each frame to create these pulsing abstract patterns and had started doing it in San Francisco, of course, uh, before he got sort of uh, uh, attracted to New York uh, to, to, with a fellowship at the Proto-Guggenheim. Uh, and, you know, Connor was a glutton for the punishment of painstaking, time-consuming work. All his mandala drawings, often just done with felt pens, but with such care that not one stroke fudges over into the next. So all the, the interstices of the strokes with the felt pen make the inner pattern of the mandala. They, you know, they were run uh, in, on the cover of the Oracle and so on in the, in the day. And so he was, you know, making these patterns and supplying them for these public venues. And he did say about the light shows, which he really enjoyed, and after a while, Van Meter seemed to have sort of sloped off and Connor was essentially running it, the alchemical Ibis company, uh, was that, gosh, you know, we can make a film on the fly. I don't have to work for six months splicing film and then trying to inveigle people to come into a little room and watch it when they come anyway, you know, and I can just, you know, improvise. And so it becomes more of a sort of jazz exercise, I think, you could see it like that, uh, that he could do on the spot. And I think he loved it. And of course, it kept him in touch with all the music he loved, the kind of danceable blues rock music that he really most loved in the period, leaving aside his attachment to gospel which was the other side of his deep musical affinity, black gospel music. Well, we find ourselves at the top of the hour and I would really love to thank both of you for this very deeply stimulating and, and kind of connecting all the dots kind of discussion. Thomas Crow and Carrie Lambert Beatty, an honor and a pleasure have you with us tonight well it's, it's an honor the city lights has a numerous entries in my index 
And uh, so I, what I, when you asked what better place, you know, to have a chance to talk about the book. And Carrie, thank you so much for doing the honors tonight. You're such a great interlocutor. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.